0: The Battle of El Teb fought on the 29th of February 1884 was the first battle between the British and the Sudanese Mardists that would culminate in the Battle of Omdurman 14 years later. The battle between 15,000 Sudanese warriors under the Mahdi’s lieutenant Osman Digna and a British army which included famous regiments such as the Black Watch and the Gordon Highlanders occurred in eastern Sudan, close to the Red Sea coast. But why were the British army in Sudan at all? It's a good question with a confusing answer. If you recall from my part one episode on the British Sudanese Wars about Charles Gordon going to Khartoum, Egypt had established her own empire in the Sudan. Now, I don't want to go into massive detail, but it's probably important that we do recap. Egypt's empire in the Sudan was part of an ambitious strategy to place the country on an equal footing with the European powers. Back in Egypt itself, this included various modernisation and industrialisation programmes including building the Suez Canal. These ambitions had in the 1870s bankrupted the country, resulting in Britain and France taking over key roles in the government to protect their economic interests and Britain buying out the Khedive of Egypt's share in the Suez Canal. This humiliating situation resulted in an Egyptian army revolt led by Urabi Pasha, which in turn led to the British fearing for their interest in the Suez Canal and sending her army under the command of General Sir Garnet Wolseley. Urabi and his army were defeated by General Wolseley at the Battle of Tel kabir and the British became de facto rulers in the country. I say de facto because it all gets a bit confusing. Egypt was part of the Ottoman Empire but effectively had been doing her own thing since the 1820s. But now, somewhat bizarrely, she was almost being treated like she was part of the British Empire, although not officially. And meanwhile, Egypt had her own empire in the Sudan. And in the Sudan, there was growing resentment at Egyptian rule. In the very year that Urabi Pasha had led his revolt in Egypt, a Sudanese revolt against the Egyptians erupted in the Sudan. It was led by Mohammed Ahmed, who proclaimed himself to be the Mahdi, or in Islam, the guided one. His end-of-days prophecy and anti-Egyptian message electrified the country, and his forces swept through Sudan. Egyptian attempts to seize back the initiative from this charismatic rebel leader ended in disaster. A huge Egyptian army, numbering 10,000 under retired British army officer Hicks Pasha was annihilated by the Mardis dervish warriors. The Khadif of Egypt now asked the British for help. Prime Minister William Gladstone was loathed to get involved. Sudan held no strategic or economic value for Britain. The problem, however, for the British. Was that having effectively taken over Egypt, they had, by default, taken over Egypt's problems in the Sudan. So Gladstone's problem was now how to support the British-sponsored Khadif in Egypt so his authority wasn't undermined, whilst not ending up in a costly and pointless war propping up the Egyptian empire in Sudan. Via his High Commissioner in Egypt, Sir Evelyn Baring, Gladstone applied pressure on the Khadif to evacuate the Sudan. In return for Egypt effectively withdrawing from her empire in the Sudan, Britain would provide support to enable that evacuation to proceed smoothly. Darling of the British public, Charles Gordon was offered to the Khedive to oversee the evacuation. Note, Prime Minister Gladstone wasn't offering any military support to the Egyptians, just one solitary general to oversee the evacuation. This way, in Gladstone's mind, the British will have helped save the Khedive's precarious position in Egypt without risking British troops in the Sudan. It was a neat political trick, or at least it would have been if it had worked and if Gordon had stuck to the script. Instead, having arrived at the Sudanese capital, Gordon went off script and rather than overseeing a military evacuation of the city, he decided to defend the city against the forces of the Mahdi. Meanwhile, another Egyptian army under yet another former British officer, Valentine Baker, had landed on the Red Sea coast of Sudan to the east to rescue two Egyptian garrisons who were besieged by Osman Digna, a Mardis-supporting warlord. If you remember from the previous episode, rather like the Hicks-Pasha expedition, this too ended in disaster with most of Baker's force wiped out. With no Egyptian army left in Sudan and the Mahdi sweeping all before him, Gordon now found himself besieged in Khartoum with little prospect of relief. Well, certainly not from the Egyptians based upon their most recent performances. Meanwhile in London, the press were in full cry. What was the government going to do to save Charles Gordon? The cry was taken up by General Wolseley. It was taken up by Queen Victoria. It was taken up in Parliament. Gladstone was being boxed into a corner that he had been trying to avoid all along. British troops would have to go to Sudan to rescue the renegade Gordon and show some sort of solidarity with the Egyptian regime. The problem for Gladstone was that any rescue mission to Khartoum would take some organising. Whilst there was a British army in Egypt, it was far too small to march the 1500 miles from Cairo to Khartoum through a country awash with the Mahdi's fanatical warriors. But he needed to show the British public that he was doing something and fast. And thus a force of British troops already en route to India via the Suez Canal were diverted to Suakin on the Sudanese Red Sea coast. Quite what their overall objective was was a bit unclear. As Suakin was a lot closer to Khartoum than Cairo this is all relative it was still 500 miles they might be able to open up a corridor to let Gordon escape from the Sudanese capital. Notice the idea would be for him to escape not for the British to end up taking control, but to achieve that, they would first need to deal with Osman Digna and his Beja tribesmen, who controlled the route inland and who had just massacred Valentine Baker's army. Now, whilst Baker had been leading an Egyptian rather than British army, his defeat had nevertheless been an embarrassment to the government in London. If nothing else, avenging his defeat would keep the press in Britain happy and off Gladstone's back. The force was under the command of Major General Gerald Graham, VC. Graham was a royal engineer who had served in the Crimean War, where he had received the Victoria Cross. He had also been wounded whilst taking part in the storming of the Taku Forts during the Second Opium War in China. His force consisted of 850 cavalry, 3,300 infantry and sappers, and 28 guns. The cavalry were made up of the 19th Hussars and, ironically, Valentine Baker's old command, the 10th Hussars. All the more ironic, as Baker would actually accompany Graham on this expedition. The infantry brigade consisted of the 1st Black Watch, the 3rd King's Royal Rifle Corps, the 1st Golden Highlanders, the 2nd Royal Irish Fusiliers, the 1st York and Lancaster Regiment, the Royal Light Infantry, along with an attachment from the Royal Engineers. And finally... Graham's army was supported by 20 guns from the Royal Artillery, consisting of a mixture of 7-pounders at 9cm Krupp's guns and mountain guns. Further firepower would be provided by the 162 men of the naval brigade, armed with two 9-pounder guns and six Gatsling and Gardiner machine guns. This is a very different army to the one that in the previous episode, Osmond Digner had just defeated. Not that he or his Beeja warriors were worried, Despite never having actually fought the British, despite never having fought the British, these wild mountain warriors have been fighting invaders with success ever since the Roman times. One more invader didn't trouble them, especially as they now had modern rifles and artillery from their most recent victories and Osman Digna gathered fifteen thousand warriors to teach the British a lesson. Graham's army began to land at Suakin on the twentieth of February. Fifty miles to the south and slightly inland was the town of Tokar. An Egyptian force had been besieged there by Osman Digna's men and indeed Valentine Baker's expedition was attempting to relieve it. Graham was now given orders to relieve Tokar and again show the British public as well as the Egyptian authorities that the British were doing something positive in Sudan. So it came as a bit of a concern when just two days later Graham was informed by some Egyptian soldiers that the garrison at Tokar had surrendered to Osman Digna after Baker's defeat. Not sure whether this intelligence was accurate, Graham decided to advance on Tokar in case the garrison was still holding out. As it was, the intelligence was correct and the Egyptian garrison had surrendered, whilst the one at nearby Sinkat had been massacred when they tried to make a run for it. Moving by boat to Trinicat, they marched on Tokar along the same route taken by Baker just two weeks previously. Baker, who was accompanying Graham, must have had a sense of déjà vu. On the 29th of February, 1884, the British army advanced towards the hamlet of El Teb. It was here at El Teb that Valentine Baker's expedition had ended in disaster. And just like two weeks previously, Osman Dignar was waiting for them. But this time, instead of the 1,000 men that he had assembled to defeat Baker, he had 15,000. Up on the hill where the hamlet stood, the Bajer had constructed gun pits and entrenchments to protect their Krupp's artillery. The British advanced in a square. To the front were the Gordon Highlanders, whilst the Black Watch formed the back lines of the square. The left side consisted of the York and Lancasters along with the Royal Marines, whilst the right-hand side was formed of the Royal Irish Fusiliers and the King's Royal Rifles. Inside the moving square were the guns, whilst the cavalry were outside waiting to charge. At 11.20, the Mardis forces opened fire with their newly acquired rifles and Krupp's artillery. And then the British did something the Beja weren't expecting. Unlike Valentine Baker's Egyptian army, rather than firing one volley and fleeing, they simply lay down. With their guns now having a clear line of sight towards their enemy, Graham ordered the artillery to open fire. It didn't take long to silence Osman Digner's Krupp's artillery based up on the high ground, whilst the Gatling and Gardner guns ripped into the ranks of the Beja warriors. With the Sudanese guns silenced, Graham ordered the infantry to resume their march, and as they did so, they ran into sustained rifle fire from the Sudanese Mardists. It was now that the British cavalry under Colonel Stewart, were ordered to charge down the British right flank, and as they charged, Sudanese warriors lay down pretending to be dead, Then as the cavalry returned to their positions, they leapt up with their razor-sharp swords to cut the hamstrings of the horses. The unseated riders were hacked to death. Lieutenant Colonel Barrow's horse was killed and he came crashing to the ground. The dazed officer was surrounded by major warriors racing in for the kill. Suddenly, quartermaster Sergeant William Marshall of the 19th Hussars spurred his horse through the throng, grabbed the officer and galloped to safety. For this act of bravery, Marshall was to receive the Victoria Cross. He would rise from the ranks and end his careers as a Lieutenant-Colonel in his own right, dying in 1920 at the age of 65. Apart from William Marshall, there was another Victoria Cross awarded at the Battle of El Teb. As the British Square moved forward to close with the Sudanese, one of the naval brigade's Gatling guns moved slightly ahead of the line. Almost from nowhere, major warriors sprung up surrounding it. 42-year-old Captain Arthur Wilson from HMS Heckler single-handedly protected the gun and his injured men until the York and Lancasters arrived to the rescue. Arthur Wilson, V.C., would go on to become an Admiral of the fleet. With the British almost at the hamlet, General Graham now ordered the infantry to fix bayonets and clear the Sudanese from the last entrenchments and buildings. The seizing of the hamlet effectively brought the battle to a close. The stunned major warriors streamed off into the surrounding hills, leaving an estimated 2,000-plus of their comrades Dead on the battlefield. In the two hour battle, the British had lost just 30 men killed and 149 wounded. 22 officers had been killed or injured, including Valentine Baker, who had been hit in the jaw. The Battle of El Teb was the first time the British army had been in action in Sudan, and it wouldn't be the last. Graham still needed to get to Tokar to relieve the garrison, he was still unsure of its fate. Failing that, his force might be needed to somehow evacuate Gordon from Khartoum. But apart from this setback at El Teb, the Mahdi's hold on Sudan was growing, and the opportunity for Gordon to get out of Khartoum alive was diminishing fast. And whilst Osman Digna had been defeated, his army, numbering over 10,000, had retreated into their mountain strongholds. The British had not heard the last of Osman Digna. Within the month, His warriors were once more facing up to the British, and this time they would actually break the British Square. And that instant, all about the British Square being broken by the Beja warriors at the Battle of Tamai, is the subject of my next episode. If you're enjoying my work, then why not join my supporters club, where you'll get my weekly newsletter and also a copy of my British History timeline. There's also an opportunity to join me for live discussions, where we go into more depth surrounding my talks. You'll find a link in the description. Join me next time as the British face Osman Digna and his Beja warriors again at the Battle of Tamai. But until then, thanks for your support, keep well, and I'll see you very soon.